Hi, I'm Donna King, filling in for Mark Rotterman. Coming up on Front Row, the November election results are here. And what do they mean? What can we expect from 2024? It's a little inside baseball this week with strategists Jim Blaine and Morgan Jackson on Front Row. Next. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining me today, Mitch Kokai from the John Locke Foundation, Democrat strategist Morgan Jackson, and Republican strategist Jim Blaine. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate having you here on Front Row. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it really gives us a good sense of what we can expect in 2024 for sure. First, let's talk about 2022, though. The, the elections in November, what were some of your key takeaways? Morgan, we'll start with you. Tell me what your thoughts were about what we saw happen in November. So, you know, I thought 2022 was a fascinating cycle. It was one that ended up very differently than it began in a lot of places around the country. Uh, for much of 2022, there was a discussion of a major red wave that was going to come. And listen, I think even polling, internal polling that we had on the Democratic side a week before the election predicted a different result than we saw in a lot of places. Um, it was interesting. I think Roe v. Wade had a tremendous impact and reshaped the electorate uh, around the country in a major way. I also think that one of, the, one of the reasons Democrats did a little bit better in some places is because Republicans nominated candidates in the primary that were not good for general election. They were strong primary candidates, but were ultimately seen as too extreme in the general election. I think North Carolina suffered... Uh, North Carolina didn't didn't follow that mold as far as doing Democrats doing better nationally. And we saw that because of the lack of investment nationally in the, in the U.S. Senate race here. We ultimately had one of the sleepiest U.S. Senate races in the country, and that accrued to Republicans' benefit. And I think it helped them up and down the ticket uh, in North Carolina. And that was largely due, listen, I think Sherry Beasley ran a good campaign, but when you get outspent and the national Democrats don't come and help you, it, it ends up hurting turnout, and that's what we saw in North Carolina. Sure. Jim, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I generally agree with Morgan, Donna. Um, I think uh, the key point that Morgan made that I want to emphasize, though, is I think uh, Republicans in North Carolina did a really good job of nominating good candidates. And where they had good candidates, they benefited from not a red tsunami like some sure. folks were expecting, but definitely a high tide uh, for the Republicans. And you know, I think Ted Budd proved to be a pretty good candidate. There's a reason the race was sleepy. Both of the candidates were pretty good folks um, who didn't really have any personal problems. And uh, that kind of allowed Bud to take advantage of the slightly Republican generic environment and win. I think in the legislative races, unlike in some other states, Republicans generally nominated pretty good candidates. Where they had good candidates, they won. Um, where they didn't have great candidates, they lost. And um, I think that uh, Morgan's right is that the candidate quality nationally played a huge role in the Republicans' inability to take advantage of uh, the first midterm of a, of a sitting president, which is usually a pretty good cycle for the out-of-power party. Sure. So I think that's the big candidate. I, I would say candidate quality mm -hmm is the big difference between what happened for Republicans in North Carolina and what happened 
for Republicans nationally. Sure. Who would you say biggest winner and loser of 2022? Well, I'll start out with the biggest winner, and then we can do biggest loser. Uh, I'm going to say the biggest winner was North Carolina's Constitution. Uh, that old document had been treated like a piece of toilet paper by Anita Earls and the Democrats that controlled the court for the last four years. I mean, they made Bill Clinton's, you know, difficulty figuring out what is meant look like clear thinking as they torturously turned words and clear phrases in the Constitution to get the political outcomes that they want. So we th I think that they're going to probably pull that document out of the trash heap that it's been left in by the Democratic Supreme Court, and I think you're going to see uh, some strict uh, constructionist outcomes from uh, the Supreme Court. Tamara Berenger, who's one of the justices, probably one of the smartest state senators I worked with uh, when I was in the legislature, unknown to most people. She wrote a lot of the technical parts of the original tax reform legislation as a freshman senator. I think there's a really strong group of Republican justices on that court, and I think they understand the English language and uh, sure. will adhere to the true meaning of the doc of, of uh, the words in that document. So I'm going to say the Constitution won, was the big winner this year. Good, good, good. What do you think, biggest winner or loser? <laughs> I'm just still trying to get over the Constitution. But uh, so I, you know, I've been trying to get over the Constitution for years. More. I don't mean it's your president, okay. your president Trump, who wants to throw it in the trash. So it's uh, and, and we're not for that. Uh, right. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. That's good to hear. So, uh, you know, I think it's sort of fascinating, as we talked about. I mean, I would say biggest winners. And I, 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 North Carolina was challenging for Democrats. And so I'll say on my side of the aisle, nationally, listen, you got uh, Democratic governors picked up three uh, governorships across the country. That is a big deal in a year. As Jim said, he's right. This was not supposed to be a year that Democrats won big races. Uh, not only picked up three seats, three governorships across the country from Republicans, but picked up a U.S. Senate seat in a year that we, that's the first time in I think 70 years or 30, 40 years that you've had a midterm where the party in power has gained seats in the U.S. Senate. So I think that's a big deal. I, I talked about losing in North Carolina, and I think part of it is the big, the big losing in North Carolina for Democrats was the fact the lack of investment in the Senate race. Yeah. And I think the, as I mentioned early, earlier, Sherry Beasley being outspent was actually, folks think we had a big Senate race in North Carolina, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. It actually, by the numbers, was really small. But the margin of being outspent in North Carolina, Sherry Beasley was outspent by more money than any competitive Democrat across the country. Wow. And that had a huge impact on, as I said, all races up and down the ballot. Uh, I would say biggest, the last one I'll make is the, I think we can talk about is the congressional race, the Wiley Nickel, Bo Hines congressional race. I think that was a huge surprise. I think Wiley Nickel ran a phenomenal campaign, arguably the best campaign of the cycle against a weaker Republican opponent. And I think this one of the things we talked about is uh, nominating a weaker uh, opponent. I think there were a couple of folks in the primary that would have been stronger, but you got to give Nickel credit. He ran an incredible race that given North Carolina's trend this year, he shouldn't have won that race, y'all, right. but he did, and it was due to how strong of a campaign he ran. Sure. Yeah, no, nobody's really uh -huh. quite, quite figured out who this advertised Wiley Nickel is uh, that everybody <laughs> saw on TV and voted for. It didn't really match up with the man we saw in the legislature. Right, right. What are your thoughts? Well, Morgan's already thrown in a surprise, and so we'll start with Jim this time. If there was a big surprise that you wanted point out, but I also, uh, you have already touched on the Supreme Court elections, state Supreme Court. We also saw Republicans swept the Court of Appeals races. Just how important, and this is for both of you, and we'll start with Jim and you can talk about big surprises, but just how important are these judicial races in general for the way our state government operates? 
So I'll tackle biggest surprise first, Mitch, and uh, I'm going to combine biggest surprise with the biggest loser question. Um, I think the biggest loser and the biggest surprise has to go to Pat McCrory. Uh, Pat McCrory started out the U.S. Senate race uh, ahead of Ted Budd 60 to 10 by 50 points. He ended up losing the race basically 55-25 by 30 points. Lost, so he had a 90-point swing against an incumbent, uh, a former, well, the only one-term governor in state history. He was the only governor to ever lose a uh, re-election bid. But um, um, I think McCrory's got to be the biggest loser of the cycle and the biggest surprise. It's almost like the, we found out the emperor has no clothes. Um, I think go, we knew that. Though. Well, <laughs> you have argued that since the 2016 election, but I think Republican primary voters figured that out. I think the way McCrory's kind of handled himself and operated over the years, uh, you know, not a single legislator endorsed his campaign for Senate. You saw a congressman that was a 10% just elevate right past him and win every single county in the state except for Mecklenburg, which he almost won. Um, so I think the biggest surprise was how badly Pat McCrory got beaten, and I think that makes him the biggest loser of the cycle, too. Yeah, and the second part of this was uh, the importance of the judicial elections. You already talked about the Constitution, but just how important is that, and we'll get you and Morgan well, on that. Republicans have always said all we need the justices and the courts in North Carolina to do is read the words of, con of the Constitution and for them to mean what they say. Um, and I think we have some people, like I said, that understand the English language and are pretty smart, and they're going to follow the words in the Constitution. And uh, I think the citizens of the state will be better off for that. And uh, all these good laws that Republicans have passed that you've seen torturously overturned <laughs> by activist liberal judges will stand up uh, uh, to scrutiny when the law is fairly applied. I think, let me, let me, let me uh, actually... You want to bifurcate that Yeah, let me okay. underscore that a little bit. I, I think what Jim is trying to say is, is what the Republicans in the General Assembly want is justices who will agree with them that the laws they passed are constitutional. That is basically what they want. Listen, I think this is a huge deal, and it may have a, a tremendous impact on public policy. I think everything from abortion access, marriage equality, education funding, gerrymandering, these are all issues that have come before the Supreme Court and been decided by the Supreme Court, whether it's the last two years or the last 10 years. And I think the real question that... that public policy experts and, and lawyers are looking at is, is this Supreme Court moving forward going to respect precedent of the past? Or are they going to rewrite history from the bench moving forward? And I think that's the big question folks are going to be uh, looking for in the next year and two years, three years as this court uh, takes shape. Sure. And as we talk about policy, a lot of our new congressional delegation, everybody came from the state legislature. So that may mean they take some of those policy ideals with them. How do you think that that experience in the General Assembly will translate on Capitol Hill? And will we see a shift in or, or a focus in policy? Well, Either. well I, I, I've said for years, Donna, uh, North Carolina's congressional maps are like toilet paper. They're good for one use only. Mm -hmm. And uh, these maps that were run on last time are out the door already. Uh, we're gonna have new maps. Uh, I would, if I were any of the new congressmen, I wouldn't get too comfortable or buy a place in Washington uh, based on previous history. So, I don't. You know, I kind of view this as kind of an an interim congressional delegation. I suspect we'll see pretty dramatic changes to the map sure. this year, and that'll have pretty big change in the makeup of the delegation is my suspicion. Right, right. We're so I'm not investing okay. too terribly much time okay. in trying to decipher what, what I suspect is a group of one-term congressmen will be right. up to. You know, I think yeah. one of the things yeah. that is, uh, I don't disagree on the congressional map. Obviously, I think it'll be different. I think ultimately courts will have a say whether or not a, 
currently 7-7 map in a 50-50 state versus what I think Republicans are planning to draw 11-3 Republican map. Not 12-2. Uh, That's uh, what I keep hearing. I, you know, I think <laughs> I, I think if they could get 12-2, I think if they could get 14-0, they would. But uh, you know, it's fascinating. It is clear the state senate this cycle and has been for several years. If you want to go to Congress, go to the state senate first. It seems to be the <laughs> it seems to be the easiest path for it. I mean, five new members of Congress and all five of them were current members of the North Carolina State Senate on both sides of the aisle is pretty fascinating. You know, we had seen the Senate. The Senate for years has been a breeding ground. Roy Cooper was a senator. Sure. Attorney General Josh Stein was a state senator. Former Governor Bev Perdue. You had Janet mm -hmm. Cowell, the state treasurer. For years, you've had all of these state senators moving up, and sure. uh, it's just sort of fascinating to see it continues to hold. Right. Let's, right. let's talk a little yeah. bit about the legislature because we've alluded to them a little bit now. Uh, so we have a state senate that has 30 Republicans, veto-proof supermajority. 71 Republicans in the state house, one short of a veto-proof supermajority. What sort of impact does that have on the politics of how these two chambers are going to, to move forward? Let's start this time with Morgan. What do you think is going to be the impact of 30 Republicans in the Senate, 71 in the House, and how things get done, and how Governor Roy Cooper plays a role? Sure. Listen, I, I think, first of all, is that it certainly will have a more conservative bend. I think the governor uh, having, having both chambers uh, it, not in supermajorities for the last two years has kept the, the Republicans in the legislature from their worst impulses uh, by either vetoing legislation or and not being overridden or them saying we, we can't pass it, telling... And, and listen, I think some of this is, is not always the leadership. Some of it is the further the further sort of right wing of the caucus who wants to go down a road that I think even sometimes the leadership doesn't want to go. But, but I think, listen, it, it was a big deal. Uh, to hold off a supermajority in the House, and I think ultimately that keeps Governor Cooper's veto at the table. I think there are going to be real negotiations. Listen, the good thing for North Carolinians, divided government has worked. We've had good budgets the last two cycles that have been signed. We're making progress on a number of issues bipartisanly. We, I'm sure we'll talk about Medicaid expansion today, but that is one of the big things coming this session that Democrats and Republicans both agree on. It's a matter of getting together and figuring out how to get it done. Sure. Well, my runner-up for Biggest Loser was Robert Reeves, the minority leader in the uh, State House. I mean, I really feel terrible for him. Uh, with 71 Republicans, uh, Reeves has to keep every single Democrat in line. He has to make sure they show up. He has to know where they are. I think there's going to be an incredible amount of pressure on Representative Reeves uh, from these guys to, you know, make sure his troops are in line. and. The House is a hard place to, to uh, keep uh, the troops in line. On both sides over the years, it's been a very freewheeling chamber. Uh, you know, a lot of the members willing to make their own deals. Um, my suspicion is that uh, Speaker Moore probably has a governing supermajority with the current delegation, that on most issues he'll be able to find a Democrat to go with him. I think that'll undermine Governor Cooper's negotiating position to some extent. Um, obviously, I think the Republicans would have preferred to have a supermajority in both chambers and be able to go about their business. But um, I, my suspicion is Moore, who's been pretty adept at handling the Democrats in the House, will be able to find different members on different issues to work with him. So sure. um, that would be my main point about how the, I think the legislature is going to operate this go around. So let's move on to 2024. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about that. Jim, you had a poll recently uh, that looked at a, the Republican primary. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Tell me what you found and how do you think this will play out for North Carolina? So, so shameless personal pitch. Yeah. Uh, we started a polling company as part mm -hmm. of our differentiators data business. And uh, so we did this poll to get a little attention. It's been successful. 
role yeah. uh, in getting this attention. So we did a Republican primary survey, released it uh, earlier this week, uh, the presidential results and the gubernatorial results uh, today. And the interesting thing, to, very interesting to me, um, uh, Ron DeSantis was beating Donald Trump by 20 points in the prime in our primary survey. Um, I was surprised when I saw that result. Uh, actually, a little concerned about it. But then subsequently, we saw uh, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, national poll come out. They mirrored that result, and I think Trump's appeal in the Republican Party more than anything else has been that he is a winner. Um, and after getting kicked around by Obama for eight years, more than anything, Republicans just wanted somebody that would fight and win. And Trump did that, but he brings a lot of baggage with him. Um, you know, the aforementioned suspend the Constitution com uh, comment from earlier this week, which we actually polled, and Republican primary voters overwhelmingly disagreed that we should suspend the Constitution and rerun the 2020 general election. They were not in favor of that at all. Um, but I think once he lost, and then once they saw a lot of his candidates lose Senate races this cycle. And I mean, a lot of his hand-picked folks. Um, I think at that point in time, Republican primary voters are relatively pragmatic people. They want to beat Biden. And I think that they've come to realize that Trump's probably not the best option to do that. And they're not willing to put up with all the things that come with Trump if he is not winning. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, let's also talk about the fact that Governor Cooper has had some national publicity as potentially being someone on a Democratic ticket. Uh, you have some of the inside knowledge, Morgan. Uh, what's going to be next for Governor Cooper? He certainly has two more years in office, but only two years. He can't run for a third consecutive term. I don't know. I feel, like the, I feel like the General Assembly has been thinking, that's one of the things they're thinking about changing, is letting the governor run for a third and fourth term. I think that's one thing the Republicans would like to have in North Carolina. So, you know, listen, I think it's, it's, it's Governor Cooper's done a good job, and and because of that he was he was elected and reelected in a state that Donald Trump won twice. The only Democrat in the country who has won two elections at the same time Trump was winning the same state. So naturally, he's getting a lot of national interest from folks. Said, wait a minute, there's a lot of good things going on. His chairmanship of the Democratic Governor Association went really well, as I mentioned earlier, picking up seats around the country. So there's a lot of talk about Cooper nationally. I will tell you. The governor's been very clear. He supports President Biden. He intends to work hard to get him reelected in 2024. I believe Biden is running again. Uh, but in the governor's focus in North Carolina, he's focused on getting Medicaid expansion passed. He's focused on uh, strengthening our public schools and, and a number of things he's focused in North Carolina on. So that's, that's where his focus is. He's, he's committed to Biden. He's going to help him. Uh, it's nice to get national attention and accolades, but uh, he's focused here at home. Jim, do you think uh, Cooper is going to be on a national ticket? Oh, it's a, I hope we never see Governor Cooper on the ticket in North Carolina again. Uh, he's been a formidable <laughs> and successful opponent of uh, Republicans over the years, and I'm hoping this is the end of the line. My suspicion is, though, that we may see him in a 2026 Senate race, uh, especially if uh, Biden loses his reelection campaign. Um, I think Morgan would like a chance to make some big, big, big money and uh, run, a, run a U.S. Senate campaign. Here's the thing I'll tell you about I, I don't think he's, I don't, he's not done. He's not done. He's got a lot left to do, y'all. I don't, I don't think Cooper's trying to nudge Kamala Harris out of the VP role, though. I mean, uh, despite some rumors to the contrary in the Atlantic. Sure, sure. So 2024, though, we'll also have a governor's race. Uh, yeah, that's a big deal. Everybody's talking about it. It looks like Josh Stein, Mark Robinson might be moving in its front rotors, but we've got a long way to go. 
Uh, you know, tell me, tell me what your thoughts are, Jim. You want to start? Yeah, so with you? we, uh, the the aforementioned poll we did. Uh, Mark Robinson has spent the last two years winning the Republican primary. I mean, we tested him against Pat McCrory. He was beating him by forty points. Mark Walker, who was thinking about running, has beaten him by fifty points. Dale Falwell, who's thinking about running, has beaten him by fifty-five points. Uh, Robinson's name identification and name awareness with Republican primary voters is an insurmountable obstacle to any challenger right now. It would take ten million dollars just to get to where he is, to catch him, much less beat him. Uh, so he's going to be the Republican nominee. I think the big question for Robinson and his team now is whether or not they can pivot from that very successful two-year run of winning the no Republican nomination. They have put it away. Now the question is, can he pivot and become a general election candidate? And he has the opportunity to do that now because he's won the primary. On the Democratic side, I'll let Morgan speak to this. Uh, I think Stein's the favorite coming out of the gate. There's been a lot of rumbling that maybe, you know, they'd like to see a person of color nominated, um, a woman. Um, and heard, heard, heard a lot of a, a lot of angst on the Democratic side about whether or not Stein can uh, can beat Robinson. And so I'm curious whether or not you think he'll end up with a primary. So here's what I'd say. I think uh, there's no question that Attorney General Stein has the inside track to the nomination. Uh, not only has he shown an ability to win really tough cycles, I talked about Governor Cooper winning twice. Great uh, uh, Attorney General Stein won twice at the same time Trump was winning, one of the only Democrats in the state to do that. Uh, as Jim just mentioned, as far as he's a fundraising juggernaut, you know, most people don't realize, but he raised more money in 2020 than any attorney general candidate in the history of this country uh, in an election cycle. That's what it takes to win governor's races is you ha these are these are 50, 60 million dollar affairs, very expensive. Uh, Stein has the inside track with primary voters. He is well liked, has a lot of support from party leaders, elected officials, and others. Uh, I, I think I think he will be the nominee, and I, you know whether or not he has a, a, a substantive primary or nominal primary, I think he's got the inside track to, to win this, just as I think Robinson does as well. The real question is, on Robinson, do people like Tom Tillis say, hey, Robinson can't win the general election. Do I have to try to step in and stop that from happening? I, I'll tell you one thing. We talked a lot I've about. I've seen a few squirrels uh, try and stop cars over yeah, the years. Yeah, uh, listen, I don't. I don't disagree with your analysis. <laughs> and, and I of think it. Tom Tillis is a lot smarter than a squirrel. I, I don't disagree with your analysis. Say, of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when you look at governors' races around the country, the the brand that Mark Robinson has of divisive rhetoric, of loud, of really, really extreme positions, went down in flames in every single competitive governors' race across the country. Sometimes that works in a U.S. Senate race. We're, we don't see that. I mean, look at Arizona is a great place where you had the Republican was like, she's the new star of the Republican Party and loses to what, you know, I, I think the Democratic candidate who won was fine, but was by no means looked at upon as the star that that uh, the Republican candidate was. And so I think the question is, Robinson is easy to disqualify with general election voters. Can he pivot? Can he change? We've seen this Trump sort of thought process before, you don't pivot because you just continue to play for the applause. And I think that's what Robinson does. What do you think? Well, I was going to ask you both. So if it is going to be Stein and Robinson, you guys are political consultants. What would you suggest that they do to help win that general election? Let's start with Jim. Um, well, I, I think uh, I think what you have right now is if that is a setup, uh, Josh Stein's the most ideologically left person that would have ever been nominated. Uh, for governor in North Carolina. I mean, arguably, Robinson is the end of that yang and is as far right as anybody. Um, so you're going to have a pretty big ideological divide. I think Robinson's challenge, to Morgan's point, is um, celebrity candidates have not done really well. 
he has to he has to show that he is a cerebral candidate and it can execute and is not just interested in being a celebrity. Now, my experience with him is there's a lot of substance to Mark Robinson. I think he's a far more pragmatic person than the caricature that Morgan tries to paint of him. And, and honestly, that a lot in the press have tried to paint him. I mean, he had WRAL putting a black man in a Klan outfit in an editorial costume two years ago. I and mean, that's how tone deaf some of these people on the left are. Um, and I don't think Robinson meets the caricature at all. He has a really interesting, uh, you know, very you know, bootstrapped himself up personal story. I think he'll be able to relate to everyday voters. Um, but I think he's got to make that pivot. Uh, now for Stein, I mean, he's going to have to refute the idea that he's a, you know, Ivy League intellectual, far left liberal from Chapel Hill. Mike Morgan, comment on that. You're going to give me the last minute. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's yeah. what I say. I think, listen, the Attorney General's done a good job. He's he's been tough on crime. He uh, voters across North Carolina like the Attorney General profile. He has been a strong advocate for consumers. Uh, he has won over $500 billion in, or $5 billion bringing money back to the state for consumers on opioids, on um, going after uh, sex predators and testing rape kits. I mean, these are all things that matter to people. I think Robinson, you know, we talk about his caricature. His caricature is created by his own words. And I think Robinson, the challenge of Robinson is how do you appeal to women when you criticize them? How do you appeal to uh, LGBT community when you criticize them? How do you appeal to all of these different folks when you're attacking them all the time? Yeah. That's hard. Women make up 54% of the ballot. I would not go after women. 56 yeah, some tough. years. That's right. We have so much we could talk about this. We could do this all day. I appreciate both of you being here on Front Row. That's it for us. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row with Mark Rotterman is provided by Robert L. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Nicholas B. and Lucy Mayo Body Foundation, A.E. Finley Foundation, N.C. Realtors, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.